It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we react to an incredible game at Anfield as Liverpool draw with Arsenal. But who does it affect most? Was it two points dropped for Arsenal or was it a point gained in terms of that lead in the Premier League? We'll also reflect on the events between the assistant referee and Andy Robertson. Who is to blame and what should the punishment be? We'll talk about some massive results at the bottom of the table as well. Wins for Wolves, Bournemouth and West Ham. And we'll look ahead to some crucial ties in the Champions League as well as Manchester City take on Bayern Munich and Chelsea face Real Madrid. This is the game. Hello and welcome back to the game podcast. Uh, I am Hugh Wizencroft alongside Gregor Robertson. And Alison Rudd will be joined by Ian Hawkey a little bit later on when we look ahead uh, to the big matches coming in the Champions League. But of course, we start by looking back on what was another eventful weekend in the Premier League. Uh, lots of debates to be had. But where should we begin? Alison Rudd, should we start at Anfield? An interesting game for both sides. And uh, one where I think both sides feel like it could have been two points dropped Maybe I think Arsenal will be feeling it's a point gained given some of the late chances that Liverpool had. But it was a fantastic match uh, between Liverpool and Arsenal. Finished 2 all. Roberto Firmino scoring a, a late equaliser. It means Arsenal's lead at the top of the Premier League was cut to six points. Pretty much Arsenal looked very comfortable early on. They had a two-goal lead inside the first half an hour. The game sparked into life thanks to who else? Granite Xhaka, uh, he had a little altercation with Trent Alexander-Arnold. That sparked the Anfield crowd and it brought Liverpool to life. Uh, Mo Salah scored just before the break and then at the break, a very strange incident that we'll come to a little bit later on. Referee's assistant, Konstantin Hatsidakis, uh, looked like he was going to, well, he looked like he did elbow Andy Robertson. Uh, but then in the second half, again, very eventful, Mo Salah missing a penalty and yeah, just all of those chances, a frantic end. Aaron Ramsdale, brilliant. We'll come to him in a moment. What a game it was. But I need to start with that question, I guess. Two points dropped or a point gained, particularly when it comes to Arsenal, I think, Alison. Well, you're obsessed with it. Sky Sports were obsessed with it. I mean, it was great coverage, but I've never heard the question, was it two points dropped or a point gained, posed more often. I mean, poor old Ramsdale, He, he he's... A nice open individual who's man of the match, deservedly. So he was up for the interview and 
he kept being asked, but but is it is it two points dropped? And he's going, maybe, maybe it's a point gain, maybe. And I think the reason for the obsession is, yes, it's a tight title race. So we want to know what it means, although you can't know what it means mathematically. You can only guess. So it's pointless asking the question over and over again. But I think the other reason it was a question that obsessed everybody was because it was such an unusual way to um, do the proverbial what does it feel like when it's a draw? Because Arsenal were incredibly on top for the first half an hour or so, and they were very smooth and Anfield was quiet. And they it did look like they might score for fun if they kept going that way. I ate a giant bar of peppermint arrow in that first half hour out of sort of depression. And because I, I couldn't see a change coming you know, it was it was almost embarrassing. You know, where where is where is Trent Alexander Arnold supposed to be playing? And it's if it's a, if it's a clever twist on his career, it's it's the wrong day to do it, and it's not working. And wow, you know, Arsenal really do look like they're going to break that hoodoo at Anfield. Twelve games since they'd won there, they they look like this time they've got the psychological stuff sorted. They're prepared, and for them to lose from. See that I've answered the question. I said for them to lose, so it must feel like um, they're the ones that drop the points <laughs> because it, I, in my head it feels like Liverpool won that because it was such a turnaround. But it was such a crazy game, and it wasn't as if Arsenal were dreadful. I don't think some of the marking was poor, but I mean they still created chances. And I always say, just because a keeper's busy doesn't mean that you you've had a rubbish game overall keepers part of your team and he's one of the very big reasons they're in the title race at all so it's a new it wasn't like they suffered some sort of last gasp against the grain equalizer it was it was a very peculiar match and that means it's very hard to know but as I say emotionally I've let it slip I think they dropped I think Arsenal dropped two points in the title race agree Gregor yeah I mean I don't know actually I kind of felt by the end of it they were lucky to skate with anything but everything Alison said is true. That's why it was peculiar because they they went to a two 0 lead, which is so rare at Anfield, and they were so dominant. And the game, I think, it's been well overblown. Personally, the the Jaka incident. Some people who were there perhaps could feel the rise in the crowd better than me, but I didn't have anything to do with the goal that was scored, which which owes a lot to some excellent play by Curtis Jones and some good fortune in that. Jordan Henderson stuck out her foot and it went into the path of Mohamed Salah. That's what changed the game. That's what turned the game. I think if it had been anyone else other than Granite Xhaka, there would be no conversation about that moment. But it was Granite Xhaka and I've I've been on here saying how much of a, a dafty you can be plenty of times before. I just think that, I don't think you could say that the game turned on that moment. But it certainly turned after that goal and in the second half. And look, part of that might have been the incident at half-time too. It railed Liverpool up, involving Robertson in the assistant. It could well have been that Liverpool have, have have kind of found responses like this, but not had had the kind of cutting instinct, the threat to kind of to, to really to finish chances to put the ball in. That was true, but they still managed to score two two goals. So you know Liverpool could have could have scored four or five. And as as we said, Aaron Ramsdale was in in sparkling form. So it was very peculiar. It must feel to Arsenal like because of the command the position they were in two points dropped, but at the same time, they were fortunate to leave Anfield with anything by the end. Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that one, Gregor. Um, I just don't know what really happened. I mean, leading into the game, I felt 
that Arsenal would actually win the game, not necessarily comfortably, but they had the blueprint from Manchester City. And obviously they play in a similar style where you felt like Liverpool might for periods of that game be kind of chasing the ball and you could almost work work them into the ground. You might see Anfield change in terms of the mood as, as a maybe a gulf between the two teams was exposed. And Arsenal just didn't keep their heads. They didn't keep their possession. I mean, particularly in the second half, it went up to Saka. He would lose it. Martinelli, head down, dribbling. He would lose it. There was no composure. Gabriel Jesus, yeah, obviously not really a target man, particularly when you're playing out of your own half. You know, none of them really kept the ball and it just invited more and more Liverpool pressure. And I felt like actually Arsenal allowed the game to drift away from them. Late on, some of the changes just didn't go in Arsenal's favour either. You know, um, Jakob Kivior came on, I think it was his second game for Arsenal. And uh, it kind of disrupted them even more. And it ended up with chance after chance after chance in kind of the last five to ten minutes for Liverpool. And some of them were incredible. Darwin Nunez had one. Ramsdale made that save. There was a deflected effort from Salah. Fantastic save from Ramsdale. And then I'm not sure anyone could believe what last gasp just before the final whistle Ibrahim Akanate just, I don't know, what he could have headed it, he could have tried to kick it in the end. I think we all thought a chest would have been enough. Fantastic save from Ramsdale just to make the effort to get back in that situation, to keep the ball from going into the back of the net. And that's maybe why I would fall into the camp of a point gained for Arsenal. Um, but, but all of my mates that support Arsenal were absolutely devastated with the result. And maybe they, they maybe it was just a bit of excitement because their record has been uh, so poor at Anfield so long. Is it a decade since they they last won there? Maybe even longer than that. So, um, look, all, all the conversation turns to whether it will affect the title race, whether this will open the, the gates for Manchester City, six points behind with a game in hand. And, of course, still to play Arsenal at home at the Etihad. And I guess we can come to that in a little bit. But I still think there was so much in this game for us to discuss. And, and uh, Alison, I, I need to really ask you about Liverpool because, for me, it feels like the bigger teams get something out of Liverpool at the moment that they're not summoning against some of the so-called smaller teams in the league. And I wondered if you had a reflection on that, if you wonder if, if, if that's right and, and why that might be. Yeah, it was, it was also fascinating that Liverpool, you could see all their flaws. And I think you're right. I think for the first half an hour, Liverpool were playing like they have done against some of the so-called lesser teams. You did think, oh, this game is going to end up a sort of in microcosm showing what a terrible season this has been for Liverpool. And it was almost a parody, I think, the way that um, Trent was playing in midfield, but without there being a replacement right back on the field. So it was it was really strange. And then when they started playing incredibly well, it wasn't that they tactically changed anything. Part of the reason they played well was that Trent had a great game from midfield. And um, so they were playing well in spite of the odd formation. But clearly he was comfortable doing that. And it seems counterintuitive to say it because we're here to analyse why results happen and how goals are created and conceded. But it was a case of all inhibitions going, complete faith in themselves as a club coming back into play. 
that sense. And, and, and you could you could tell this was true because even the most hardened anti-Liverpool voices in the Sky Studio kept saying it's Anfield's a curious place and strange things happen. They weren't playing football. They were playing a different game about emotion. They were roared on to believe that they could do it no matter how odd their lineup was or whatever flaws their lineup had. They just believed that if you kept pressing and kept pushing and kept running, that adrenaline would see you through, that intuition would see you through. There was some, there was some nice stuff. It didn't feel practiced or from the training ground. It just felt, I have to make this cross beautiful because the cop wants it. And there was like that sort of energy you get in a cup final was there. And that there was no particular animosity towards Arsenal. The Arsenal fans had observed the silence for the Hillsborough show of respect impeccably. And I think most Liverpool fans would rather Arsenal won the title than Man City. So there was no there was no no sense of, oh, we have to beat Arsenal, we hate the Arsenal. It was more a case of this is a big game and we know people are watching and they were made, being made to look inferior here. And the crowd let the team know, don't let it go this way. Don't let this be another embarrassment. Show that you're better than them. You know, we could probably beat the team that might win the title and that'll that'll have some small consolation and it'll feel like we've got something to build on. So it was it was it was a strange emotional victory. They didn't Liverpool didn't click because of some great tactical tweak. They just almost were scared to make any more big mistakes and that's why it happened. And I'm almost embarrassed to say it because I am buying into the Anfield is different narrative but it's true I've been there when it's happened like that and you do feel you're in some sort of out of body experience it's sort of mystical and magical and spine tingling and I don't know if you're playing in that environment it affects both sides I think I'm not going to downplay the the Anfield effect like clearly the the crowd will their team on as well if not more impressively than than most places in the country but I think fundamentally it boiled down to Liverpool not having anything to lose at 2-0 down. It's different if you're if you're 2-0 down against Fulham at home. It's like this is an embarrassing defeat. They were playing against a team who many think could be the champions and it might have underlined their sort of uh, regression, but I think you saw a team, as you said, Salson, that had no kind of inhibitions from that point, that point on because they had nothing to lose. And... That's quite powerful, and I think once they responded and the the crowd got behind them, it was it was a really forceful display from the from uh, in the second half onwards. And Arsenal, on the other hand, like having kind of ceded real control and being two goals ahead, suddenly you saw them, you saw the sort of realization in their play that holding on to this is going to be pivotal in their title race, and it was it was a bit more nervous and edgy, and they didn't they weren't. They weren't as confident to play their football, the football that they've played so well that's got them to the point that they're at now. And that's natural. That's kind of human responses to the situations they're in. But also, like, Trent Alexander-Arnold is turning into the most fascinating player to watch because I was reflecting after we, Tony and I particularly spoke about him the other week and felt like we spoke about him a lot and we have a lot this season and it's like he's still an outstanding player. We know that, but even amidst this kind of response in the second half, 
there were still moments where Martinelli ran past them like he wasn't there. It's extraordinary. He's just lost all capacity to defend in 1v1 situations. And I, I know like Alison was alluding to the fact that he's been asked to step into midfield a bit more, but that had nothing to do with the with the uh, with Jesus's goal. It was like just a kind of a moment of lapse of concentration where he's he's kind of stepped up almost as Martinelli ran off in behind him, and it was extraordinary that Jack had clipped the ball over the, down the line. Konati ran across to try and cover Martinelli, and didn't get close to him. He crossed the ball and he just hit the, the ball into the net. There was no player got contact on an Arsenal player from the moment that Jack had got the, received the pass from the free kick. That's just never happened to Liverpool before. No one made contact with the opposition from the ball being inside their the opponent's half, and there was like three passes and it was a goal. And it, you could say the same about you know this kind of this whole thing about fullbacks, the sort of evolution of fullbacks that you could discuss as well. I mean, Zinchenko is so important to Arsenal's play and moments where the combinations between Zinchenko and Xhaka and Martinelli on the left are absolutely pivotal to the way they play. The way they combine and, and spring Martinelli often is really, really hard for, for anyone to defend against. Uh, so he's so important, Zinchenko, but he, he's not as strong a defender as he is a footballer. And that had a, a profound effect on this game, the way that he was beaten too easily by, by Trent Alexander-Arnold as well. Story of the game told in two fullbacks and you know how important they are to their, to their team's play, but also that they a bit of a weakness as well. Uh, just on Trent Alexander-Arnold, because I've been so critical of him that I've stopped criticising him because I felt I felt like it was really kicking a man while he was down for a period of time there. I was like, look, I've said it enough. I'm not sure how many times I can say it. I kind of said it a lot during the period, actually, that he wasn't playing that badly. And kind of everyone thought I was being harsh about him. And it was, you know, when he was getting left out of England squads and I was, you know, we were talking about best right backs in the country and we were kind of highlighting the issues in his game. But he wasn't, he wasn't playing amazingly, but he wasn't playing that badly. And kind of during the last year, it, it became so bad that you kind of felt, I'm not going to pick on the guy too much. Like he, he's clearly having a torrid time. And we saw yesterday in setting up that final goal, what quality has in the final third and in and around the penalty box. But I totally agree, Gregor, at times, even in that match, um, Martinet just knocked it down the line and just ran past him. I mean, it was absolutely no effort and no effect on the situation as a defender. That would have been really, really disappointing to see from Jurgen Klopp. And it's not really improving. So I don't know what happens with, with Trent. But again, if they are a dominant team, if they're on top, you just get a glimpse of what he can do to to remind us all just what a quality player he is. Zinchenko, I felt very sorry for. We saw when he got substituted and he was on the bench, just how devastated he was that he kind of allowed Trent past him to set up the goal. But what is Gabriel doing? You've got to watch this goal back and tell me what the centre-half is doing. By the way, they've got three centre-halves on at this point in time to not back up his fullback. He jogs off back towards the six-yard box. So when Trent beats Zinchenko, he's got all the time in the world to put the cross in it. He doesn't need it but there's no pressure on him. And I think Gabriel could have affected the situation as well because your fullback can get beaten. You know, that the nutmeg can happen. You know, Trent can get past him. And it was very strange reading of the situation that's in che- that um, Gabriel thought, I'll just leave Zinchenko to it. I get it. He made the error if you like to be beaten. But I do think Arsenal as a team and Gabriel in particular could have defended that situation a lot better, including Ben White, at the back post, Mark Firmino just jogs off of him and ends up in about four or five yards of space. So um, from an Arsenal perspective, that could have been a, a lot better. But then again, 
they really should have lost the game when you look at those late chances. Um, so it brings us to Aaron Ramsdale, who's becoming more and more of a special goalkeeper against all of the odds, I'd say. I mean, the, the reaction when Arsenal bought him, a double relegated goalkeeper, was he? I think a lot of people were thinking, what on earth is happening here? Will he actually be Arsenal's number one? And he was, and he slotted straight in. And he's been ever improving, Alisson. Um, and, and really, you start to reflect on whether he should should be England's number one soon. Oh, yeah, I, I would have him. I, I understand when it comes to the national team, you, you're trying to create a sense of it being a team. And, and one of the ways you do that is you stick with the same goalkeeper so that even if you have to move everyone else around, you've got the same sort of personality at the back. And Pickford does have a particular personality. But where Pickford is prone to odd decision-making and being slightly eccentric, I think Ramsdale, who people thought were that sort of... I think people thought he was that sort of keeper. He's actually proven us wrong, and he isn't. He's incredibly reliable and solid. And if he has that sort of quirk in him, he's learnt to iron it out so that he looks like one of the majestic greats. I was so so impressed with him you sometimes goalkeepers make saves and they look dramatic but when you look back at them you think well they, they, there was a bit of flamboyance in there that wasn't necessary the save was one you'd expect to make as a top goalkeeper they just made it look a bit more special because of the way they've arced their back or whatever but I felt Ramsdale did the opposite he made very 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 difficult saves look easy by not wriggling or stretching or gasping he just made them look like oh this is simple but his his the steps he took sort of the adjustment of his body the way he watches what's going on he was completely in control I know I know I know two goals got past him but it could could have been very many more he was just and sometimes you you hear goalkeepers say they like playing at Anfield because the fans whilst they are intimidating they always respect and show admiration for a keeper they welcome a keeper before he's put his gloves on that makes them feel good and then uh, they will applaud a good save and he just looked like you know none of the other Arsenal players after that sort of first half hour period did look particularly comfortable in the cauldron but he did and that's what marks out a great goalkeeper is that they just, just as we all know, they like a penalty shootout because it gives them a chance to shine and there's no much, not much pressure on them. Equally, a good goalkeeper likes an environment like Anfield where there's respect for good football, but they enjoy... They, they know they're going to be busy because the home team are going to be at, at him and giving him I think problems to solve. He's not going to get anywhere else. And I think probably what I would say is most impressive is because the game turned... And the style of football turned and the intensity switched. He had to change his, you know, his mindset to deal with that. It was, it was two different games for him to have to come to terms with how he tried to patrol his area and get into that mode of, oh, I'm going to have to tip something to safety and stretch for something now. They, they think I'm going to be peppered or I don't know where the next shot's coming from. I don't know. He, he adjusted to the pe- change in pace and he adjusted to the fragilities of his own defence and midfield as well. He wasn't getting quite the cover he had earlier on. So mentally and in terms of you know his his basic skill level, he was he was great. And if I was Gareth Southgate, not it's nothing against Pickford. I just think I want I want him. I want him. He'll be good for us. And he's you know he's just as big a character as Pickford. Actually, he's um, 
very, very likable and uh, very, very popular. The Salah save was extraordinary. Remarkable, remarkable save. If he's ironed out the, the kind of, I think you described him as ex- eccentricities there, Alison, like, like a lot of goalkeepers are big characters and he's clearly a big character and there's been moments where you felt that that's kind of not been a good thing on the pitch. I'm yet to be convinced that, that that's still not going to re-emerge occasionally. But he's been unbelievable this season and like absolutely has surprised a lot of people and a lot of people thought it was a strange sign. And he's someone who th- seems to thrive on, as you say, when you're when his goal's been peppered, he's like that seems to be his favourite place. <laughs> he loves he loves being the guy who's who's who has to be depended on to to kind of repel everything. The Kanati one as well. I mean you can discuss about how Kanati hasn't sort of done something to get a different part of his body on it, but he just looked like he was it was meant to be that he was going to be racing back across like a little boy and just parrying the ball out of the net and diving into the net as he did so. It was like he just looked like he was having the time of his life, which is always a good thing. And as for the England thing, I think we could also say that Pickford had a had a very good game as well uh, this weekend against Manchester United. He's he's still in very good form and he's he's got a lot of credit in the bank with Southgate. So I think he's going to take some shifting personally. Listen, there's only one more thing that we need to talk about. Not really about the football. Got to say, very strange incident between the assistant referee and Andrew Robertson at half time. And I just had to ask what we thought about the situation and whether we think there'll be punishment for the official because it's something that we've spoken about a lot recently because of Alexandra Mitrovic and his eight-match ban, um, Fulham versus Manchester United. Now you kind of think, well, Andy Robertson is walking towards the tunnel. The assistant referee is walking onto the pitch to join the other two officials. Clearly, there are words from Andy Robertson. I, I don't know what he was unhappy with. He does touch the arm of the assistant referee. He does get close to him in terms of his body and his face. But then you see the referee, he doesn't necessarily just pull his arm away. He quite clearly lifts his elbow to Andy Robertson's chin. I I don't know about the the amount of contact, but it did look like there was contact there. Robertson not very happy. That was the thing that I found weirdest, um, the kind of appeals from Liverpool players, not kind of, I mean, I don't know if they thought it was an opposition player, but they kind of crowded the official, uh, the referee, as if to say, you're not going to send him off. It was one of those kind of, ref, come on, give him a card. I I didn't quite know what they were really appealing because it was always going to be something to be dealt with, I think, after the game, maybe at the time. But even then, what's going to happen? You're going to get another uh, official on the line. That would have been the only difference, really. So it will be sorted out now, I think, and investigated now, and the PGMOL uh, will take a look into the incident. So are we imagining, firstly that the official will be banned or punished severely. And the second part of this is, what do we think about the part that Andy Robertson played in it? And generally, players pay now in terms of their interactions with officials. That's the only way I can describe it. Um, which seem to be, you know, if there is a line, we, we don't really see it anymore. So two, two elements to this, I think. And Gregor, I'll start with you. Well, Mark Samuel's written in his column today that he referenced... A kind of a bit of a precedent in this with Darren Drysdale refereeing a game between Ipswich and Northampton in February 2021, where he kind of went head to head with Alan with Alan Judge, and I don't think he refereed again until the end of March. So you're looking at you know a month, six weeks of being stood down just to kind of take him out of the firing line, and it, 
I know this is more high profile, but there is there are similarities there, and part of that undoubtedly is to do with the way that players treat referees and officials. And you say interact, it's abu- it's abusive. You know, even Henderson, who is you know sort of player that everyone has a lot of respect for, the way he was interacting with the with the referee after you know after that, with his kind of back arched almost and like right in his face. I, like I keep coming back to I I know people think this is extreme, but I don't think I don't think anyone except the captain should be allowed to speak to officials. This has been something that's been constantly been new directives, new kind of new guidance, new not not laws, because the laws are already there, but they're just never, you know, acted upon. I remember one of the first articles I ever wrote for the Times about six or seven years ago, I was asked to kind of say when there was a new directive about how players should be cautioned immediately if they if they harangue the referee, and this happens every few years, and then it, like it might affect the way that the game's officialed for a few weeks, and then it's completely forgotten about. That it just doesn't work. I don't think. I don't think footballers in the heat of the moment can be can basically be trusted to speak to referees in a way that's acceptable. So you either need to use the laws that we have and penalise them, you know, book them, send them off if needs be, or I th- I honestly think and I know people think it's extreme. I don't think I think we should say that you're not allowed to interact with them at all. Only the only the captain should. Hang on, aren't we victim shaming here? Because if player was to elbow the referee or an assistant in the neck, I mean they would get twelve match ban minimum, probably more in the current climate. And yet we're, we're turning it into a bit of a comedy episode, aren't we? Because it's the other way around, and also because. Constantine is a bit of a unit and he looks like, oh, yeah, it's the sort of thing I do every day, someone annoys me. And it's like a, a little, and the tone was set by Roy Keane calling Andy Robertson a baby. This is bad, actually, that we've A, turned it into something of a cartoon, when this is really bad image for refereeing, mainly because I agree with everything that Gregor said about how it's getting out of hand, the way they are hectored constantly. And that they've been unable as a body to underline that, that being harangued is not allowed. And that they've, they've started to show more yellow cards for it, but it doesn't seem to be having much of an impact. There needs to be a complete rethink about that and how both sides understand the emotions that are going on. You know, if you sat everyone down in a cafe, they would all agree that it's wrong to speak to another human being doing their job that way. But that when you're in the middle of a relegation tussle or a title race or a passionate game at Anfield, you forget the normal rules of society and you just you just get very passionate and angry and probably say things you you don't want to and you don't mean it to be overly aggressive. But we do we do try overall to say you can't put your hands on the officials, and that is why Mitrovic got a reasonably lengthy ban. It didn't do anything terribly violent, but, you know, you don't touch them. So for us to now make out that in some way this is all Andy Robinson's fault is just... I don't think anyone's saying it's all Andy Robertson's fault. Do you, do you think he played no part in the situation? But that's, that, is, that is what victim shaming is. He, he did no, nothing... No. He, no, he did nothing differently to any other player over the weekend in that... Well, no, he, 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 he got within he, he two t- inches of his face and he, and he got close enough to make him... to basically touch him as he was walking past him. So that, like, that's not acceptable. He didn't, 
it's not acceptable, but it's not acceptable to be elbowed of course in, it's not. in of the course neck it's afterwards. Not. Of course it? it's not, but that's the context in which that happened. And we're, you have to put in the context. Of well, the of course, of course, to... one would, one, what we would be having a completely different conversation if the assistant referee had, had marched over to Andy Robertson. And while he was, Andy, Andy Robertson was just having a chat with his manager and minding his own business, he'd clocked him over the head with something. Then obviously we'd be having, a, it, would, it would go to the criminal court, wouldn't it? Because that would be odd. Obviously he's, the official's only done something because he's really annoyed with this player pestering him. It, it does look like it might have been Constantine who said something so that Robertson got booked. I don't, we don't know exactly the, the order of, what went on, in what order things unfolded. And Robertson doesn't want to get a yellow card for for having maybe said something after the whistle's gone for half-time. Maybe that's why he was particularly cross, because he knew it would affect his game in the second half and he felt a sense of injustice. And yes, I accept he shouldn't be wandering around following any official just to, to bleat about it. But we, we get very po-faced when it's the other way around. So I don't I don't see why we shouldn't be as equally, I think, be equally appalled when it's this way around. Because I think that the issue here is, and I think the official will get a decent length of ban and he should be punished, but I think he doesn't raise his arm towards Robertson's face unless Robertson touches his arm. And that's what I mean about your interactions with the officials, because we have to really ask the question why Andy Robertson, I, I, yes, you can call it victim shaming if you like, but feels that it's okay to put his hand on the official or even get that close to his face in terms of, you know, whatever he was saying, he felt he had to say it from two inches away from the official's ear. You know, he didn't go to a respectable length. He didn't respect the official's personal space. And I don't blame Andy Robertson for that. I blame football for that. We've spoken about it before, even listening to you talk, Alison, you know, about the line in terms of talking to officials, it, it feels like you think, it's okay to say things we've just said and I'm not saying this is your opinion I mean in terms of your interpretation of what football allows football allows you to basically say what you want to the officials but we need to make sure we don't touch the officials like for me the line has been pushed too far back because in other sports that's not where the line is it isn't you can scream in the official's face you can get in his face you can get you know two inches away you can enter their personal space you can call them every name under the sun but just make sure you don't touch them that for me, if that's how we see football, and then that is basically saying that the line is in the wrong place because that shouldn't happen. You shouldn't get into anyone's personal space into in, in their line of work. I don't know what you expect. What because it's football? Like if I go into B and Q now and I go up to someone, a member of staff, and I grab them, like what are they? What are they going to do? Like oh, you're a customer here. I should give you more respect. Like no, I'd expect the guy to lamp me or push me away or do something physical in return. Like, again, you can call it victim shaming if you want. I'm just talking about who we are as human beings. Like, I, I don't see where it's where we see as a sport that it's okay that you even get that close into an official's face, let alone put your hand on their arm. Like, I, I just but, don't but, see it. Yeah, no, I, yeah, everything you've said is, is complete common sense. And I have huge sympathy for what officials have to cope with I think it's an incredibly stressful job anyway and that's an, an, another layer that must make it so so hard it's just that the, the and I'm not even sure that it's you and Gregor that are doing this to make me cross but it does have an element of humor to it in the general reporting and vibe of it that because it's the other way around you know game a poach gamekeeper but poacher sort of thing that it's it's somehow 
an amusing thing, whereas in fact it's it's not. If it's not funny for Mitrovic to push the referee, it's not funny for an assistant referee to elbow Andy, Andy Robertson. I don't think it's amusing, but I think the main reason I don't think it's amusing is because of the point that this has got to. Like, actually, not because of what's happened to Andy Robertson. Andy Robertson won't like. Oh yeah, he was angry at the time, but he, he'll be waking up today, and I think he'll probably be wishing that it had n- never happened, that he'd never gone over to speak to him in this way, and that I'm sure, like the, the one of the things again that Martin Samuel pointed to was that Alan Judge made no complaint. You know, he, he had a clear kind of argument that nearly got physical with the referee, and afterwards he was. I think he would have been asked you know, do you want to take this further? And he said, no. And I, I, if I was Andy Robertson, I would be doing the same. You could also say that, like, looking at it, clearly it's it's not it's not good, but it, it could have come from a place of instinct to kind of be brushing brushing his arm off. And I know it went far too far, and it looks... <laughs> it was an elbow, it wasn't just a kind of brush-off arm, but that could be where the instinct came from. And as I say, the, my, my fundamental thing is about what do you do from here? It's been tried so often and failed, like every single time, to try and ask officials to punish players for for treating them this way, and it's never seen through to a conclusion. They never, never book players for for swearing at them for, as I say, getting up in their personal space because sometimes there's eight of them doing it at one time. You're going to book eight players in one for one one episode. It doesn't happen. So. I honestly think the best thing, the easiest way, would be to to make them not allowed to speak to them at all. I, I got. I tend to agree. Uh, uh, this is just covering other sports. I, I just don't like. Uh, this is the thing that it comes down to as well, and I find it very strange and peculiar. Is that I think we we almost reflect on football players like they're not going to be able to control themselves, like they're toddlers, like they're they're little kids. Are like, well, what do you, what do you expect them to do? That's the thing that I hate most about this conversation in terms of treatment of officials. We use officials in football as punching bags. Like we just abuse them, fans abuse them, managers on the sideline just screaming in the face of the fourth official. Like you would never treat someone like that in any walk of life. And yet as soon as they put on their their kit and they put on their earpiece, they're just there to be abused and screamed at and treated so poorly. And then if they do anything back, we're like, oh, we, we can't accept this. It's just such a difference to the players because the players add so much into the atmosphere of either aggression or intimidation. So when you do something to the player, it's obviously going to be seen differently. Even in the incident with Alan Judge, the reason that I think the official got such a lengthy ban is even though Judge was clearly screaming a lot of abuse at him, he makes the the move towards Judge and leans his head in. Actually, it's not that Judge got to a yard within him, like into his face, and then suddenly they were they were head to head. Like actually, Alan Judge kind of stops walking towards the referee a couple of yards away from him, and then the official closes the gap and puts his head towards Judge. I don't think it's going to be seen in the same way as what Andy Robertson, if you like, did or the interaction that they had. But but ultimately, I just I think football needs to draw a line because I think it's just ridiculous. I think it's just childish. It just it doesn't suit the world that we live in now. The way that we treat officials in football and the idea that no one's going to be able oh oh a penalty decision's just too much for me to not scream in his face from a yard like I I don't see it like I watch but, rugby but every you, week. We could we could have this conversation. What you've just said is 
something you could have said and probably have said anyway, but something you, we could say on every single podcast about yeah. every single game. But you're, we're going on at length about it because because an official has done something wrong, so, which therefore means we are we seem to be saying is it's understandable and shouldn't be heavily punished because it's understandable. It's not, not that, it, not that, no, not, not, that not, not that it shouldn't be heavily punished, but this is the, I, I was having an argument about this yesterday and this is the way that I basically analyzed it in so far as we will ask the question to the official, why did you lift your elbow to Andy Robertson's face? And he will probably get a lengthy ban. Robertson got a yellow card. I don't imagine any of us think he's going to get a lengthy ban. And I'm not sure if we're going to ask the question, why did you think it was appropriate to put your face an inch away from the officials? Or why do you think it was appropriate to touch his arm? Because as, as you're pointing out, Alison, you think that's victim shaming. And I don't actually, I, I don't actually blame Andy Robertson for that. As I said earlier, I blame football for that because I think they, football thinks that's okay. That's my point. Football has allowed a world where it's okay to get your face in the, in the face of an official, like clearly. And that's the point that you're making there. We see it in every game. So that's what I'm saying here. I just don't see it. it look, I, you guys know I, I watch rugby. I present rugby. I see people who are doing a job which is far more physical and aggressive who are able to control the urge to physically abuse the people that they're playing against, who are, are able to control the urge of abu- abusing the referee. They don't even swear at the referee. We're talking about grown men who are playing their, you know, it's a professional sport who don't even swear at the referee, who certainly wouldn't call the referee a name, never even enters their mind. And they actually perform the entire game in much closer proximity to the official than most players do in football. You you know, you spend most of your time pretty much, you know, half of the players on the pitch within sort of 20, 30 yards of the official. There's no abuse. And if there is... It's so easily and quickly dealt with. So why hasn't football, with all of the money, all of the technology, all of the eyes of the world watching, this is not just English football, this is world football, why hasn't it addressed the treatment of officials? Because, and here's the thing that I think actually is maybe most pertinent. In other sports, in rugby, you see the official as the only reason the game is on. Without these people, we have no sport. They are seen as an integral part of the sport. They're brought into the bar afterwards for a drink. They're not othered like they do in football. They're not abused like they are in football or criticised in, in the way that they are in football. And that's the thing that I think when I watch football, I think, wow, if we're going to treat the officials badly, when do we have a game? Who would want to be an official? I just don't understand the mentality of official who would want to get out there and referee anyway. But that's by the by. Like, Are, are we encouraging people to be officials in the future? I, I don't see that we are, actually. Because all we do is abuse them on social media, abuse them if they have a bad game in the in the media and we allow the players to scream in their faces for 90 minutes every Saturday. I, I can't see why they would look forward to that, that experience. You know, I'd have to ask them, but in terms of how we treat them, how we talk about them, we're not making their lives any easier. No, everything, everything you say is spot on. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I am generally very grateful to officials. And if, you know, any interviews or documentaries about why people do it, it's because they really love the game and they want to be part of it and they can't be part of it in any other way. This is, this is their way of being part of the greatest sport in the world, as most people think of it. And so that's, and, and, we're, and, and the game's very fortunate people continue to put up with abuse. But I just want to ask one question of you both. What would the 
assistant referee had to have done for him to have not reappeared for the second half? What level of assault or behaviour would mean that he was instantly replaced? Because it was very peculiar watching him running the line, knowing that he'd Mm. had this interaction with Robertson. And yes, let's both agree Robertson wasn't, he wasn't doing anything different to most players, but we've agreed that what most players do isn't, isn't correct. But if Robertson had not been anywhere near him at that point in time, if, if the assistant had made the move towards him, would, would we then have expected him to have been removed? Because I, 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 I thought I, it was really strange he stayed on. Yeah, I, I would have actually replaced him at half-time. Because obviously, how are you going to run the line where Robertson is? How are you going to... I, 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 I don't get... No, but, uh, but listen, after the interaction between the two of them, you know, you can't expect him firstly to have a level head in the second half. You, you need to ask the official... Like, what's going on with you? In fact, you don't really have time to do that. So, look, look, you just go down, be the fourth official, and we'll swap you for the second half. And, again, we'll deal with it afterwards. But after you've seen that interaction, this is not to criticise, you know, the the PGMOL or anything like that. That would have just been the prudent thing to do. Like, if you're playing Sunday Sunday League and a player's had an altercation, I say Sunday League, a decent standard of non-league football where you have linesmen or lineswomen, you would have you would have changed it after an interaction like that. You would if you had the bodies available. You wouldn't have wanted the two players or the two people to interact after that. I know we've spoken about this for a long time, but like if both of the, both of these the managers of these two teams as well, like do not have a good track record in this. Yeah, either. Yeah, yeah. Like there was a piece in about a bit in Paul Joyce's report, and he said that Klopp confronted Paul Tierney when they played Spurs. I think it was away last season, and and told him he thought he had a personal problem with him. Because he'd been upset with, I think he sent off Robertson that day. This is a big issue in football, wide, like more broadly. So I think that's the most important thing. That's what needs to be confronted, and it has to be, in my view, it has to be confronted with punishments or stricter rules. There's no other way around it. And I, I, I like I was nodding away with everything you said about the difference between rugby and football here. It's like it's just it's even far rarer that players like approach the official. I I said that in. Whenever this kind of issue crops up and people ask, did you never do this? I, I never did because I didn't feel there was anything to gain. I know there are people who do. There are people who feel that it's almost part of football and like it's a tactic to to try and get in the referee's head. Like I know that's the case. I've played with players and, and teams where that's true and managers who say, you've said it. I just never felt there was any benefit to it. And I was also always, always wanted to just kind of get back into my position and be prepared for what came next. It was never, I just never ever saw a benefit in doing this. Whereas, and I think that so many players do that something needs to happen to dissuade them, you know, to persuade them otherwise. Well, interestingly that, that I was at Brentford at the weekend and Thomas Frank was sort of in the mood to sort of talk about how the morals of football are going a bit threadbare. And he admitted that he and his coaching staff were in the ear of the fourth official on purpose because it's not something they normally want to do but they felt they had to counteract the way that Jason Tyndall the Newcastle number two does it all the time it's interesting you said it's like a tactic for some people that is a Newcastle tactic that as well needs to be nipped in the bud like send them off you shouldn't be able to approach a fourth official and abuse the fourth official for 90 minutes and harangue them Send them off, make them sit in the stand. And if the next guy comes and does it, make him sit in the stand too. This is the only way it will work. It's the only way that the attitudes towards officials will change. And as I say, it's been tried so many times 
directives have been laid out so many times saying you should do this, book them, send them off, and it never happens. So it needs to be even more hard line than that, I think. It, you should not be allowed to speak to them. This is going to bring us very nicely onto our next topic. Um, let's talk about events at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Spurs 2, Brighton 1. Refereeing body, the PGMOL, admitted Brighton should have had a penalty for Pierre-Emil Hoybert's tackle on Karu Mitoma in Saturday's game. The incident, one of a number of decisions that went against Roberto De Zerbi's men. Brighton have asked for clarification around five key decisions taken at the game which saw a further penalty claim when Lewis Dunk's shirt was pulled, but also two Brighton goals disallowed for handball. I I don't really want to criticise the officials, actually, because I think this game may have been an advert for abolishing VAR altogether. Alison, Brighton were robbed. That's my reaction to it. What's yours? Yes, sometimes you get a game where there's a sort of flood of decisions and they all seem to go the wrong way for one particular team. And you think, whoa, something's gone horribly wrong here. And you feel great pity for... And I think you get get extra pity because Brighton played the more beautiful football and looked like worthy winners overall. They often do when they don't win or draw. But um, I'm I'm not a VAR advocate so it would be easy for me to say yes yes you thank you you've 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 cleared it up now actually I think what it proved is that VAR needs to be operated by far more clever people than do it currently I think having mates of the people on the pitch former referees who have not spent their life in tech shouldn't be operating it it should be whiz kids people who are have quick brains great spatial awareness, love what they see on the screen. They can have someone there to remind them of what the laws of the game are. But the the laws of the game are very simple. You don't really need to be a former referee to be able to operate VAR. And I think the key, see, the key point is you've got got two people that are very similar looking at incidents. So you're not going to get an overrule that matters. So if the on-field referee isn't sure, then the off-field referee on a screen isn't going to be sure either because they're the same being more or less. The only way VAR works is if the person operating VAR is a completely different type of beast altogether and is coming at it because we want, in the moments where we're capable of providing objective statistical data that isn't available to the on-field referee, but maybe because there's simply not, he couldn't see from the angle or he misinterpreted but it's, it can be very clearly demonstrated by technology, then you need a different person to offer that technology up. What is wrong, what this match proved is that, that VAR at the moment is, is weirdly replicating on-field, not mistakes, but on-field misinterpretations. It's supposed, what VAR is supposed to do is help the referees be better and to sleep better at night and to not feel that if only they'd seen something, they wouldn't have denied someone the points. They don't want to be, referees don't want to be responsible for results. They just want to be able to control a game and hopefully interpret it correctly. But they can't have eyes everywhere. So VAR should be doing something to help them, but in a very, very different way. What we're getting now is a sort of mistake on the pitch. And it's it's compounded by a mistake by someone who doesn't bring anything new to the, to the party. So if VAR is going to continue, it needs to be completely and utterly revamped so that it's it's giving a, a different level altogether 
it was a painful watch actually Hugh from Brighton's point of view because they are the fairy tale story of the season and it might not lead to anything if they uh, if they keep getting this unlucky how ridiculous Gregor it's just you know as is right it's like it's changing it's changing the the way that we watch games and it's changing the way that games are officialed officiated like the deflected goal was probably the most bizarre thing because you know there are things where you watch you watch a game and you, you don't see anything in, in it at all and and you still don't really see anything conclusive in it in the replay so I don't know how they possibly came to that decision the handball Matoma's handball because the the fourth official sorry the linesman flagged it at the time you could, that could be a mistake that happens in in a game before VAR existed so you can just about accept that although again you look at it and it's kind of not certainly not conclusive by the images as well that that, that we saw afterwards. It's just a mess, as I say. That, that you're, it was supposed to bring us to a point where you're making fewer errors, and it seems to somehow have got to a point where it's making new make, making new errors. It's just a new way of making more errors. It's just a complete mess. It's it's interesting. I mean, it's because so many there were so many incidents in in the Spurs game that we are focusing on them and then it makes it a bit laughable. But there was a really weird one at Brentford when Isaac lifted his leg in the penalty area and Rico Henry went down. And from the press box, it and and the area was crowded, so we weren't sure. It did look, it actually initially looked like, oh, was there high feet there and was there contact made? Because Rico Henry fell, it didn't look like a dive at all. But, you know, the ref- players crowded around the referee and then there was a long, long VAR review. And then we saw on the screen different angle after different angle and not a single angle was conclusive. It was completely down to guesswork. My guess was I didn't feel that Rico Henry's body language, the way his body contorted wouldn't have happened unless he'd been hit. But there was no actual proof it'd been hit this was circumstantial evidence if you like so the VAR after a long long review just couldn't decide so Chris Kavanagh the referee he went to his monitor and he wasn't there very long at all and he awarded the penalty and you kind of you kind of think oh we've got we this is like some sort of bizarre we're in another world now it's a different universe where simply the act of spending a long time mulling something over changes the outcome of a decision, but not based on any evidence. It's just like the weight of responsibility becomes too much. It's It was very, very strange. I mean, if, if, if in that instance, VAR can't, cannot make a decision, you think, well, why is the referee, what, what, what do they think that the on-field referee is going to see? I, I'm simply not convinced they can see very much on that monitor anyway. It's hard. It's a small, smallish screen. They're not in charge of what they can see again. They've got a voice in their ear saying, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. It's embarrassing for them to stand there too long. The whole system is warped. And it, it, just, felt like, it just felt like someone somewhere had thrown a coin in the air, said heads, it's a penalty, and it was heads. There was, it might have been a penalty and it might not. It was just, all it did was prolong the agony for everybody involved and make you think, I don't know that VAR has helped this match whatsoever. Now, I always said it just creates creates more and more layers of subjectivity. That's all it's done. 
we've complained for far too long. I know we have. And this is the thing, everyone's suffering. Like, people will listen and no no one wants to talk about this. So we're going to... We're going to talk about the football next. Some big results at the bottom to whiz through in particular. Uh, remember, if you're enjoying the game podcast and you've still got a smile on your on your face, uh, make sure you're subscribed. Just hit that notification button. You will not miss an episode. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at MintMobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bournemouth moved out of the Premier League relegation zone. A great victory, but it piled more misery on Leicester City. Philip Billing with the only goal of the game. Thanks to a James Madison assist, shocking back pass. But there you go, Leicester, without a manager after sacking Brendan Rodgers, now sit 19th in the table. Big risk of going down. It was a poor result for them. Great result for Gary O'Neill and Bournemouth, now with three wins in the past five. What did you make of it, Gregor? Yeah, like just Leicester just seemed to be in a, a spiral. And it's really, really worrying now. As you said, it was kind of, there were, Pretty fine margins, a real blunder by by Madison, but really well finished from Billing. And you know, Bournemouth defended really well when they had to. There's just been a lot of Leicester have gifted two pivotal goals to the opposition in in the last week. And Aston Villa, I think it was Indeedy who kind of played a completely misguided pass that basically set up uh, Traore to whip in the to whip in, uh, the winner. And here Madison just put it on a plate for billing, so they're kind of hitting the self-destruct button as well. And you know, they're all the all the talk about Jesse Marsh possibly coming. Looks like he's not now. They clearly didn't have a plan. Whether they can do anything to to kind of enact the sort of uplift we've seen from Leeds, although obviously they they faltered this this weekend. But from Leeds under uh, Gracia, Hodgson, you know, at Palace, even if it's just a you know. A, a couple of a couple of wins. That's what they need to kind of to have any chance, really, because they really are in a, a big slide and they've got a really difficult run in. So, you, you know, you've always looked at at, Le- at Leicester and felt that they have enough enough quality and enough goals. And you know, Barnes 
Barnes's goal the other week was was sublime uh, against Aston Villa. They have players who've got moments in them like that, and Madison's one someone who you would say the same about. But it's very worrying when they're kind of gifting goals this easily. And Jamie Vardy's been put back in the team, and not really, I've not really seen him have a chance of note. So it's it's very very worrying times for Leicester. Positives for Bournemouth, Allison. Looks like they're playing well enough to survive in the Premier League if they can stay consistent with it. I mean, Bournemouth are the classic case of the team who ought to go down when you look at their resources and the size of their home ground. They have that sort of slight championship air about them. But what they do have, which is more powerful than whether you've got James Madison on form or not, is a weird sense of positivism. They 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 don't believe they're too small to stay up. And they've got... Um, I, I, when they play well, I am always struck by how they defy their label, if you like. There was a sort of a welcome aggression and confidence from them, which they've had it intermittently uh, through most of the season. And time will tell, but it'll be interesting if that sense of self-confidence and camaraderie and belief is what gets them over the line. Because they don't have, you know, I think if you were to analyse all the team sheet, they they probably have on paper the, the players you'd think will go. But they've, they're greater than the sum of their parts. And um, Phil Billing is um, a real asset and could probably slot into most teams in the Premier League, actually. Very, very positive for Bournemouth this weekend. And moving in the right direction, huge question marks for Leicester City. I don't, I don't know where they turn to next, but absolutely spot on, Gregor. Absolutely no plan. And if I was a Leicester fan, I'd be very, very worried at this point in time, that they'll be heading straight into the championship. Uh, West Ham fans' fears were allayed a little bit this weekend. Big win for them, 1-0 at Fulham. Very fortunate as well. The own goal coming from Harrison Reed, and that was after West Ham were thrashed 5-1 by Newcastle in midweek. A stay of execution, you might say, for David Moyes-Allison. Well, it, well, it sort of proved they were right to stick with him. I mean, I was at the game midweek, and it was just... It was a horror show and there were actually periods during that 5-1 defeat where West Ham played okay, but mainly they were just gifting goals. And I think the fact that it was there were so many individual errors in that 5-1 defeat, and that's something that the, the manager can't be responsible for. He doesn't he has no control over what his players do on the ball once once the game started. I think that's what kept him in the job because it wasn't his fault. It really wasn't his fault. And so they've kept him. And this was, I mean, maybe Fulham are an easy place to go at the moment. But the fact that the players responded to him staying in the job, I don't think the players have stopped playing for Moyes. There is, There are rumours that some players have fallen out with him, but that, you get that story emerging every time a team is, is in trouble. There'll always be someone saying, oh, we don't really trust the manager. I think mostly they are playing for him He's got so much experience. He's done great things for them in Europe. Uh, he's lifted he's lifted morale multiple times at a club that are fractured, actually. Let's not forget it. So I think his desire, and he was sort of asked, he asked to stay after the Newcastle game. He's like, yeah, I, hope, you know, I, hope, I hope they have faith in me. I'd understand if they didn't, but I hope they do, which is in complete comparison to Brendan Rodgers, who I think acted like a man who was hoping to be let go. Moyes wants the chance to keep them up and 
deep down, I think he knows he's got a team much better than they're performing. And he, it's a sense of pride for him. He wants to have the chance. So if I owned West Ham, I'd have stuck with him. And I was quite pleased, really, that, that he got the three points that stop all the rumours starting again for him. Gregor, is this more evidence that, that we should be fairly confident West Ham will stay up? Um, I still think it's going to be very tight. I think Moyes has been kind of flapping around looking for a, a solution or a blueprint to to get a bit more consistency. And what he did here was basically go back to some of his old war horses, Aaron Creswell, uh, Ogbonna and Kufal at right back. And, you know, Zuma was really the only survivor from, from the midweek game. And Zuma was was culpable for a couple of goals himself, so but he was he 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 was he was outstanding alongside Elkbona uh, in this game, and also played Antonio uh, Antonio Andings as well. So I I can't I can't say that I don't like the fact that basically every Moy seems to be one game away from the sack, and he has it's been that way since like October. <laughs> West Ham seem to be of the mind that it's got to get really bad for them to part company with him because he's been here before so many times, and his experience. You know, could prove vital, and the atmosphere is not. I don't think it is broken. I think the fans are kind of, the fans will want change come the summer either way. I think, and that's a that's a conversation to be had. But I don't think it's kind of, it's broken enough for the, that they think they're doomed. And I think it's going to be very close to the end of the season still because I still don't see them scoring enough goals to to win enough games comfortably and. Although this looked like a really solid defensive display, of as I said, we we saw them shoot themselves in the foot, foot so many times in the game in midweek. So I think it's going to be very tight. It's still very hard to call. Back to back wins now for Crystal Palace in the Premier League under Roy Hodgson, and it was an unbelievable second half at Ellen Road. They scored four goals to beat Leeds five one, moving them up to twelfth in the Premier League. They're six points clear of the relegation zone, up in 12th at the moment. Leeds 16th, two points above the drop. Gregor, Michael Elise, three assists. He was absolutely sensational, but actually he's one of those that seems to have a spring in their step since Roy Hodgson has come back into the club, particularly in an attacking sense. They're just getting more bodies into the box. They're trying more things. They're getting more shots off and they've got results off the back of it. Yeah, I mean, look, look, Alisi was just shimmering, wasn't he? Even the the run he made, maybe this it was already four or five one. The run he made down the right hand side, it just showed he, he pace. I think it was Fearpo tried to basically half him in two, and he just shrugged off the challenge, and he kind of chopped back, chopped inside, and then back down the line, and he blazed it over the bar with his right foot. But he has got everything. He has got absolutely everything, and it's just about consistency for him. If he if he can find a way of reaching his his highest le- performance levels on a consistent basis. He's like a top level, like Champions League level player. I think I'd be slightly hesitant. I think I think Allison was at the at Roy's first game, and I think they battered a really a really woeful Leicester team. Uh, Leicester team that day, and this was an odd game in that it kind of Leeds were good in the first half, and then it, it sort of Palace scored just before half time, and then the second half they were clinical, and that's been the difference. You know, they under Vieira they. They just weren't putting the ball in the back of the net. And you saw every time they went forward here, they poured forward and Leeds sometimes were leaving it. There was one or two breaks where they were they had two men back against four Palace players. Leeds left far too much space and they were wide open on a number of occasions, but Palace were clinical when they got in those positions. Edwards finished as well. That's like one touch and then on his left foot and drilled it in the bottom cor- corner. So 
I wouldn't be too quick to put it down to Roy Hodgson. I think it's sometimes just a change of atmosphere. This is what happens in football management. You know, I, I'm sure if he keeps turning out performances like this, there'll be talk about him staying on. But I think that that would personally be a step backwards. But clearly, the the atmosphere's changed, and they are finishing their chances when they when they get them. And this was a, an emphatic second half display. No way they're going down now, is there, Alison? Oh no, no, not at all. I mean, look at them. Look at them. They're, they're smiling. They've clicked. They are a team jam-packed with pace and whatever Roy said, to them, well, Roy says he said to them, I've got your back if you want to take risks and go for it. And when they're in that mood, they, they frighten opposition. And these were absolutely, they, they, weren't, they didn't really do too much in the first half, Palace. They, they still threatened, but they weren't scary. And they were scary in the second half. And these just did not know what to do. But can we have a shout out, please, to... Steve Wilson, the BBC commentator, who's <laughs> did you see this? When he interviewed Javi Garcia afterwards, he said yeah. he said that is he said to the manager, that is the worst second half performance I have ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> he apologized first too. He's like, I'm sorry to have to say this. <laughs> and Garcia's face was <laughs> wow but I mean it it was probably indisputable so he couldn't really go anywhere with it so but you know Steve Wilson was there and he's one of the fairest fairest of commentators and, and one of the most astute I'm a big fan of his for him to say that I think I think that's what means Leeds are going down Alison, intrigued to know what you thought about Frank Lampard's return as Chelsea boss. It was a losing return at Wolves, um, but obviously eased the relegation worries of uh, the Wanderers. It was a a great reception from the travelling fans for Frank Lampard. They clearly love him. He was, of course, sacked 27 months ago. He's back in a position that, that some of us obviously are very, very surprised about. One eye on the Champions League, which we'll discuss shortly, Mateus Nunes with one of, if not the goal of the season. It was absolutely sensational, a worthy match winner. But did this game maybe underline that there are bigger problems at Chelsea than even Frank Lampard was expecting? What could you gauge from it? I don't. Well, first of all, I don't think Frank. I don't think Frank Lampard cared what the problems are at Chelsea. He was absolutely delighted to be given this chance of a fairy tale, and the fairy tale would be that they reach the Champions League final. And who would say, I don't fancy taking that on. So that's why he's done it. The problems at Chelsea are, I think they're enormous, actually, having thought about it over the weekend. Because if I have some sympathy with Potter, it is that I, I just don't know that anyone would have done particularly well in the role when he came in. Because I look at the Chelsea squad, I can't see any pattern of recruitment. I can't see, I see too many young players with confidence issues. I see players who are disaffected with it not being the club it used to be. I think it's the hardest team where you can say that would be the the 11 I would pick and this is the formation I would pick and it'll work. It's not clear at all. It's big and it's messy and it's cumbersome and there are you can go through every player and say there's a problem with every single player, whether it's about their fitness, their propensity to pick up injuries and therefore you try and protect them, or it's about their attitude, or it's about the fact they've cost too much money or they're players for the future and they're not being nurtured properly. It's as if 
the owners have come in and created a problem that wasn't even there. It was a perfectly well-functioning club and now it's had so much thrown at it. It's just ugly, actually. I don't think Frank Lampard cares about that. I think he thinks the players will lift themselves for what will only be amazing games to come in Europe. And football can give you upsets. And, and, and weirdly, they have the, the best performances this season have been in Europe. It's as if the players did take over from whatever they were being coached to do. They decided they were going to enjoy the games in Europe. And they, you could see them making more effort and they look more cohesive. So it's not impossible that they could perform well against Real Madrid simply because it, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want to try hard against Real Madrid? But otherwise, I don't feel that anyone knows what the pattern is, what their role is, whether they're integral or not. And partly, just to finish, one one reason maybe that they lost this game against Wolves is because some of the players playing in it thought, oh, I'm only playing in this because I'm not going to be picked by Frank for the game against Real Madrid. And that always has a negative effect on a player's ability to get stuck in. It's also entirely possible that they get hammered 3-0 or whatever in Madrid and this whole farce is completely pointless after a week. Look, who knows? Alison's right. It's all on Europe now and... Lampard will know that as well as the players, as well as everyone around the club. But <laughs> I wouldn't put much money on them uh, getting past Real Madrid. And then what was the point in this? On that note, I've got to thank you both for a cheery Easter Monday. Big smile on my face now as I head off to work. Um, listen, we tried our best to dissect the issues from the weekend. Clearly not happy about a number of things. Up next, we will look ahead to the games in the Champions League. Ian Hawkey will join us. But for now, Gregor Robertson and Alison Rudd, thank you so much for being with me. So this week, no rest for the wicked. We're back with the Champions League and some mouth-watering clashes. Some interesting ones too. We might as well start with Chelsea. Uh, they take on Real Madrid. Joining us to discuss it, Ian Hawkey of the Times. Ian, uh, listen, Chelsea, we've spoken about already and obviously under Frank Lampard haven't made the initial positive move in terms of their form that many would have hoped. So the frame of mind that they go into a game against Real Madrid is is really just hoping that they can produce something special like they did when Roberto Di Matteo was in charge. I mean, this is all about a shot in the dark, really. Um, but what frame of mind do Real Madrid come into this? Because it's four wins in the last nine in all competitions, despite the fact they always look brilliant in the Champions League. But there must be weaknesses there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're, they're not as formidable as they were this time last year. But they've, they've well, I wouldn't say given up on the league, but they're not going to retain their league title. And um, I, th- I think actually at the weekend, we saw the clearest evidence that they are really pacing themselves around the the knockout competitions. They lost at home to Villarreal at the weekend. Carlo Ancelotti sort of admitted that there was a lack of motivation. Um, if not a lack of aggression, there was a there was a peculiar incident after the game involving Fede Valverde, their, their midfielder. He he got into a scrap with one of the opposition players out, you know, sort of as they were leaving the stadium. Um, but that's by the by. That they're, they're, yeah, they're they're clearly pacing themselves around uh, retaining the European Cup. And I, I expect them to really lift their form on Wednesday. Bad news for Chelsea is that Benzema seems to be coming back into his sort of April, May peak. Um, he's got what two hat-tricks in, in the last three games. And, and mostly there was, for, in terms of their 
their buoyancy. There was a, there was an extraordinary cup semi final last week against Barcelona where they won four nil away to turn that tie around. So yeah, I mean you know they're they're into their their knockout groove and um, and and I think I suspect I suspect they'll they'll give Chelsea quite a hard time. There will be phases of the tie in which Real Madrid ease off a little bit because you know they are expert at preserving energies but um you have to say that they will look at Chelsea and and think that we've got all the know-how here and yeah that they would they will feel quite confident. Manchester City take on Bayern Munich it is another huge huge tie but um there has been changes since the last time Bayern Munich played in this competition despite winning every game so far uh, Julian Nagelsmann obviously gone as their manager Thomas Tuchel in he hasn't had the start that he may have wanted either in terms of improving their form. It's an intriguing tie, I think, this one. We'll have all eyes on it. But do you make Manchester City overwhelming favourites? Do you think Bayern Munich can summon an extra level here? And will they need it? Oh, they would certainly need it. Yeah, I would I would, I would. make City uh, strong favourites. Yeah, as you say, I mean, you know, Tuchel, Tuchel has two league victories out of his two league games so far, which was both necessary because they were they were behind Borussia Dortmund until they beat Borussia Dortmund. But uh, yeah, they're, they're, there's a lot that's not very convincing. They were they beat Freiburg, who are, who are a good team, top four team, one nil at the weekend. Um, needed a sensational goal to do it, and but you know there were there were slightly anxious moments in in that game as well. And they had been knocked out of the cup by Freiburg a few days earlier so that's you know that's that's one thing that uh, you know Tuchel hasn't done right there's several things that Tuchel needs to do quite urgently not you know not to not to save his reputation or anything but just to just to make the sort of impact that that can make them competitive against City Sadio Mane was in the starting lineup at the weekend he hasn't scored a goal for a very very long time and a strong Sadio Mane against City would be you know, it would be a really, a, a really important thing for them. They're, they're probably going to be missing Eric Chupomoting with injury, which Stoke City fans might not think is a massive loss, but he's he's been really important for Bayern, uh, especially in the Champions League. Uh, so they're going to have to do some tinkering up front, and um, you know, Tuchel's going to hope that some of that past know-how about how to beat Guardiola teams can be activated again. But uh, I, I mean, I think if they came out away from Manchester without a defeat, they'd be they'd be really really pleased. What kind of tactics has Thomas Tuchel applied at Bayern so far, um, and how do you think he will approach the game at Manchester City? You know, he he can see what Bayern are good at and where the strengths are. So, you know, width width is important when you have Alfonso Davis coming up from uh, left back. You have all those, you know, those quick wide options. Uh, Leroy Sané. Leroy Sané has has, you know, in the in the short Tuchel period, um, has been a has been a success. And you know, there's clearly a bit of resonance there with uh, with Sané against City, the the club he he left um, against City's will, actually, which is quite unusual for a City player. Kingsley Coleman, you know, it can be devastating on that on that left flank. An excellent Serge Gnabry is, is is a very potent weapon. It, it, we haven't seen an excellent Serge Gnabry for much of this season, but uh, you know, I, 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 there there are a group of players who I think 
um, under Nagelsmann were, were deemed to be you know, not consistent enough and so on. And any evidence that, that you know, Tuchel can stimulate them will will be good for Bayern and, and, and good for Tuchel. So, yeah, uh, width, pace, uh, Thomas Muller uh, seems to have been, well, he's certainly been used more more by Tuchel than he was in the later days of Nagelsmann. And, you know, Thomas Muller is... Is, is absolute Champions League expertise personified. So, you know, if Thomas Muller can find those little pockets of space, yeah, then 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 City will might have a bit of a challenge. And of course, uh, great news, the Italian rate renaissance in this competition is clear for all to see in the final two ties. So those that love Serie A, absolutely delighted. Benfica taking on Inter, uh, Milan taking on Napoli in an all-Italian tie as well. What are you expecting? Let's start with Inter as they go to Benfica. Would you make them the favourites here? No, no, not 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 in that first leg. Uh, Inter Inter in quite bad uh, form. I think no win in six across domestic competitions, and and Benfica Benfica have just have had a really a, a marvelous season. They lost, I think, for only possibly the second time um, in the league on Friday night at, at home to Porto, but. Again, I think you can probably interpret some slightly foot off the gas because because they're well ahead in the league and you know had their eye on the Champions League and and, and you know really important piece of history that they, they it'll be, it's a very very long time since since they're in the semi final of the European Cup. So I, I certainly for that first leg, Benfica at home, I would I would make them favourites. They've. Uh, They've got an exciting team. They've got they've got confidence. They're well managed, and Inter just seem a little bit anxious at the moment. They're out of the top four of Serie A. Lukaku isn't still isn't quite you know back to his vintage best. He's been injured a lot of the season. So yeah, for for the first leg, I would make Benfica favourites and probably overall for the tie. And I'm glad you're so excited about the Serie A Renaissance, Hugh. It's, uh, <laughs> Well, no, I, I, listen, just generally speaking, I think it's important for the European competition that we have strong Italian teams. I have obviously grown up on strong Italian teams in this competition, and it's been very weird to see them kind of out of the conversation for the big titles. You know, AC Milan would always kind of be in the conversation for for a Champions League semi-final or final, and it's been a long time coming really um I don't think obviously that ACL the, the big Italian hope in the, in this competition but it's not I think it is nice to see them there and if it's Napoli this season in particular it'll be even better I know they go to to Milan in the first leg of, of this quarter final but um what they're doing this season is absolutely tremendous and I think one of the things that makes the Serie A renaissance exciting is that it's against the odds same as Benfica you know if we do see an unusual name on the Champions League, we we all get excited about it, don't we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I totally agree. And and you know, while you know, while this draw is it looks rather lopsided, it's you know, it, it yeah, yeah, you're right. It's 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 really refreshing that that we're going to have an unexpected name in the final. Frankly, that's you know, that's guaranteed. And and I agree. I think if it's if it's Napoli, that will be really really exciting. Are they going to smash AC Milan? Well, I I, I think uh, two weeks ago. I would have said yes, very likely. But then there, there was an extraordinary league meeting between the two, in which uh, Milan won four nil. So uh, that you know that does leave a little doubt. Again, I think you know I think there are caveats. Napoli are so far ahead in Syria that the outcome of that game 
doesn't matter mathematically but but you know you think that it might prey on the minds a bit and and you know obviously really give milan something to believe in but um i i would expect this season's hierarchy to be reimposed over the course of of the tie and and, and napoli go through they'll be yeah they, they will feel they've let themselves down if they don't they you know they've got such a such a great momentum, um, such a such a winning formula, not just in in Syria, but they, you know they've been excellent in the in the Champions League. They're excellent against Liverpool in the group stage. There's there's a significant issue because Victor Osimhen looks very doubtful um, for the first uh, the first leg, um, and that and that's you know that's a, that's a big miss. He's he's been such a totem for them at centre forward. But yeah, I, I think I think most people would be be very surprised if if Milan can over 180 minutes can stymie Napoli. Massive games to look ahead to. Ian, thank you very much for being with us. We of course will react uh, to everything that we see in the Champions League on Thursday. But Ian, appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, you. So that is a rather lengthy game podcast all wrapped up. Thank you for staying with us all the way. Hope you've had a great Easter. Remember, loads more great journalism on the way, looking ahead in particular to those Champions League games. So make sure you download the Times app and take a look at all of the great stories there under the sports section. Of course, you can pick up a newspaper as well anytime you want and you can subscribe to the game online, thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game as always. So make sure you check it out there. We'll be back with you on Thursday. We'll see you soon. 